Father, my heart is overwhelmed. I don't even know that I have words to speak. May Your Spirit speak for me. I am so concerned, Lord, about myself and about those that are in this room today that there is nothing that has gripped our hearts beyond ourself. There is nothing that we are desperate about in this land of plenty. Father, I pray today that You would make everybody in this room desperate, poor, hungry, and determined to grab a hold of something and not let go But may that something be something that is eternal. May that something be something that is last, something that is real, something of substance. Make us desperate, make us hungry for something bigger than ourselves. Clear the noises of our head right now. And all the distractions that may be around us. And capture our heart, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. We start a new study today coming out of the movie theater. A study of of movies and how movies might speak to us and might have hidden messages inside of them that might actually have a message that maybe the, the, the director didn't plan for it to be there, but, but maybe you can redeem and find redeeming qualities in, in, in some of these movies that, that might teach us something because I realize more and more how we are all moviegoers. Uh, if you have seen a movie in the past month, raise your hand. All right. Even if you watched it on television, you've seen the movie. You might not go to the movie theater. If you get Netflix or if you go to Blockbuster, you've seen movies. We are a movie-going culture. Movies, many times, are what we do for pastime. The average American will see 38 movies in a year. That's, that's, that's a lot. That's, that's, more, you know, that's, more than, that's a lot of money going to Hollywood. All right? It's a lot of people watching movies. 95% of adults saw at least one movie this past year. 95% of them saw at least one movie. 47% of them read a book. So there are more people watching movies than reading books. I'm the kind of person, if a, if a good uh, um, book comes out, Grissom book, I say, I'm waiting for the movie because I'd rather watch it in the movie theaters. But some of y'all want to read the books before you watch the movies. I don't know. For me, I like to see a good movie. We're, we watch a lot of television. We watch a lot of movies. In fact, if you live to be 60 years, and hopefully you'll be older than that, but if you live 60 years and you live an average American life, you will spend seven and a half years of those 60 years watching television. 
we do spend a lot of our time in front of the idiot box, as my aunt used to call it. In front of the television, in front of the big screen, we watch a lot of entertainment. We get a lot of entertainment from this world. And we're a church for the unchurched, we advertise ourselves as. And so where is the unchurched? They're in the movie theaters. So let's talk about the movies for a little bit. Let's spend some time looking at that. You know, when you think about uh, internationally, what America is known for is we're known for being bullies. And this is not my conjuring it up. This is what I'm getting as I travel internationally. In fact, somebody said this past week, in the past two weeks, I don't know if it's in Paris or Casablanca or, or in Mali, but somebody said, you Americans are always right. And he said it with a half smile on his face. He was trying to in, insult me and say that you Americans think you're always right. So we're either known as bullies or we're known as entertainers because a lot of what uh, the perception of America comes through the movie screen and is passed on to, to, to nations around the world. So we're either bullies or, or we're, we're living with different people and all that kind of stuff like we do on the movies uh, so much. So the world is watching movies and we are watching movies and there's so much in a movie. And, and why would we do a series like this? There's two reasons. Real quickly, number one, we listen with our eyes. We listen with our eyes. We live in an image-rich society and a culture where we get our thoughts, our ideas. We, we, we listen with our eyes. We're watching things. We don't believe it. If you don't see it, you don't believe it. In fact, one person said it like this. He said, the movie picture machine has become the preacher. Its sermons are, more effect, are most effective because they are addressed to the eye rather than the ear. I believe Jesus said many, many times, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I believe if he was in the 21st century, he would say, he who has eyes to see, let him see. And he might do everything in PowerPoint, for all I know, if he was doing his teaching today. Another person said it like this, Stanley Grins, in the primer to postmodernism. He said, television has quickly become the real world, a postmodernism culture. Television reporting has emerged as the new test of being real. Many viewers don't think something is real, important, is really important unless it's shown on CNN 60 Minutes or made-for-TV miniseries. We are listening to the world with our eyes. That's why we do a series like this. The second reason, besides this, opinions, values, aspirations are validated through the movies. They're formed and validated through the movies. So what we begin to see, we think. And what we think, we begin to believe. Which leads me to the second reason why we do a series like this is we think with our emotions. We like to think of ourselves as logical people. You know, logic gives you facts. Facts give you facts, give you, give you, gives you data to, to analyze and, and so forth. But we really, most of the time, make our decisions from our hearts and from our emotions. A, 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 a fact will, will give you information, but emotions will cause you to change, change your way. And emotions, what they try to do, a good movie will draw you in vicariously into a story, into somebody else's life, and you'll want to become like them, or you'll want to be like them, or you'll feel sorry for them, and it'll change the way you look at life. It'll change the way you think. We think with our emotions. You know, you think about a movie that, uh, one of the movies that I think probably stirred me the most was in 1993 uh, when Schindler's List came out. When I saw Schindler's List, I mean, I had read all the facts, I'd read all the history, I'd taken all the classes. I, I'm a history buff. I enjoy history. I'd already, I, I'd taken many of my minor classes in, in college, I'd taken in history. I like history. And so I'd, I'd understood the Holocaust, I'd understood all that. But when I saw Schindler's List, I felt the Holocaust. Can you identify with me on that? 
You saw it? I can remember I was living in, uh, in the Memphis area at the time. And there's a, there's a large Jewish population that lives out in the Germantown area. And a friend of mine went to the movie theater and saw Schindler's List. And he said at the end of the movie, when the credits were rolling and the credits were finished, the movie theater was completely full. There were many Jewish people in the, in, in the theater at that time. And he said all you could hear was crying and weeping. What happened on that day for me when I saw that? I began to think with my emotions and I thought, you know what, that is an absolutely horrific event that happened in the Holocaust. Is it, to, to this day, I think of what's happening in Sudan and I can't just be still and quiet about it. Because there have likely been more people killed in Sudan, we don't even know the numbers, than were killed in the Holocaust. But yet we can kind of just go on and blow past it and, and it not really change us. Because many times we go into a movie theater, we watch a movie for amusement. Now you know what the word amusement means? It means not to think. Muse means to think. It's where we get the English word museum. If you put an awe in front of that, an A in front of that, then you say, I'm not going to think. So many times we sit down in front of the idiot box and we turn it on and we just don't think. We just gel out. But all the time we don't realize that the message is being made, we're being imprinted on our minds, whether it's Hollywood's agenda or it's some subtle message underneath it or whatever it is, we are thinking, but many times we're thinking with our emotions. What's the goal of this series? The goal of this series would be something like this. Is that we would learn to see and listen with our, with our eyes. And that we would, we would think with our emotions... But we would be able to see inside of movies redeeming qualities. The next time we're standing around the, the water cooler or the coffee pot at work and we're talking about the latest movie that just came out, we will be able to not just critique the value of the movie, but we will also hopefully be able to bring in some redeeming quality about that movie that will enable us to engage an unchurched population. You see where I'm going with it now? is that we would hopefully look at movies differently. I saw Bucket List on Friday night. Fell asleep there. Not the best movie in the world, but it has a good theme about it. It's got a good point about it. Probably next year if we do this series again, Bucket List will be on the list because it's got a good principle of redeeming qualities about it that I think you could teach from. All right, what else about Born Ultimatum? That's the first movie we're going to look at. When you think about Born Ultimatum, I'm, I'm a big, I used to be a big Bond fan, but... Born has replaced Bond in my books. I think that Born is the America's response to the, English, the Britain's Bond. And he is smart, he's handsome, he's quick, he's tough, he's all those kinds of things. He's, a, he, he's, just, he's, he's your man's man, if you, if you could possibly be it, Matt Damon represents him. And, but in the story, as you know, if you've seen all the movies, and I've, I've watched them all, we've got them all on DVD at home, uh, but as you, as, you, as you watch the movies, you'll watch in the Born Identity movie whenever he wakes up and he doesn't know who he is and he spends the rest of the movie being chased by the enemy trying to extinguish him and he's all the time trying to figure out who he is. The second movie comes along and again, he's being chased in the very first scene of the movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, but the Born Supremacy is his girlfriend gets killed. And that, I'm sorry, I know that breaks your heart. But... Uh, so if you're going to see that this afternoon, I've just stole the first five, ten minutes of the movie. But here he is, the, the, his girlfriend dies, and the rest of the movie, now he's again running for his life. But I like Born Ultimatum, because the hunted becomes the hunter in this movie. He goes from being chased to being the chaser. 
He goes from just running for his dear life to saying, I'm going to find out who's after me and what it's all about. And he makes a commitment. He develops inside of him a look, a desire, a desperation is one of the key words I want you to hang on to today. A desperation that leads to determination that he was going to achieve something. And it's been my prayer, and this message has been mulling in my heart now since Molly and before Molly, knowing that I would come back and share this. That I really don't think there's very many things in this world that we're very desperate about. That we're actually gripped to our core, that rocks our world, that drives the rest of our life, that really God and Christianity and church and the whole picture and life, it's all just a big convenient game. If it fits my plan, if it fits my agenda, if it fits my goals, if it tickles my fancy, if it promotes me, if it gets me further down the road in life, I'll do it. If not, I'm putting it aside. And my prayer and my earnest desire for Mike McDaniel, because I have to start with me, is that I would quit being comfortable and I would start living desperate. Because desperate says something inside of you says, you absolutely can't live without this, Mike. You've got to have it. Your, your life, it is the air that you are breathing. If you don't have it, you die. And what is it out there that I am so desperate for that I will move heaven and earth, I'll stay up night and day, I will rearrange my priorities, I will sacrifice my own desires so that I can achieve that, so I can have that, so I can possess it. What is it? To be honest with you, for two weeks, I've had to confess again and again, it hasn't been God. It hasn't been God. I have not been desperate for God. I've had enough of God to keep me warm on a cool night. I've had enough of God to give me a warm, fuzzy feeling from time to time to, to, to kind of keep me happy in life. But I've not been desperate for Him. Desperation leads, if you, either one of two things, either des, desperation leads to depression because you don't know how to get to it. You desperately need it, but you can't get to it. Leads to depression, which can lead to substance abuse, lead to a lot of other things. Or desperation can lead to determination. I think Jason Bourne represents determination. Not only had something happened, but he was absolutely, positively determined to right the wrong. To get it back on track. Desperation will either lead to your depression or it will lead to your determination. But I pray for everybody in this room today, myself included, that I would quit being comfortable and I would start being desperate. I want you to find in your Bibles the book of Genesis should be real easy. Unless you brought a New Testament only, then you're going to be looking for a long time. Find the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 32. We're going to look at a strange story today, a strange, very strange story. Most scholars have looked at it and said it's strange. Walter Kaiser, one of the greatest uh, living 
Old Testament scholars today listed among the most difficult passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. It was reformer Martin Luther who called it the most obscure in the Old Testament. I've never preached from this passage before. Never shared from it before because it's one of those that kind of scares you away. But it's one of those that, again, I've had two weeks to pray it through, to think it through, and hopefully I can deliver a message to you that has been on my heart as God's been massaging it into my heart because it it's really kind of comes in a very kind of strange place in the whole narrative. Genesis is a historical narrative book telling you a story of events that happen in, in a chronological order. And as he comes along in this story, we're kind of in the time and the period where we have Abraham, we've had Isaac, and now we have Jacob. And Jacob had, a, had an older brother named Esau. Jacob and Esau were, were, were separated brothers because of, of, of Jacob's deception. D- Jacob was a deceiver. He was a, he was a manipulator. He was one who was deceived and ended up being deceived. He was a deceiver and, and, and was deceived. He lived a life of deception. His, his, even his sons, 11 of his 12 sons, end up deceiving him in the end. So he lived in deception. And in that deception, he got separated from his brother Esau. In fact, he was running for his life. And finally, in a state of, uh, of wanting to reconcile with his brother, he sends word that, hey, I'm here. And brother says, hey, I'm coming to see you, and I'm bringing my, my army with me. So this is what's all going on in chapter 32 leading up to this passage. And so in chapter 32, he's, he's like, oh gosh, man, what am I going to do? I'm going to die here and my brother's going to come kill me. He's either gonna, I'm either going to need a duck or pucker. I don't know what I'm going to need to do, but I'm going to prepare to duck. And so he sends his family over here and he goes over here on this other side and he's all alone now. And then this little insert happens. Because if you read verse 1 of 32 all the way through verse uh, 23, you read the whole, his whole hiding and running from Jacob or from Esau, and then you pick up in chapter 33, verse 1, he goes right back to the story of him running from Esau and Esau coming up and embracing him. But right in the middle of it, almost like you're watching a good movie and the good movie cuts to a commercial, you know, almost just doesn't even fit. There's this little story in there of Jacob wrestling somebody. Okay, he gets into this wrestling match. And the thing is, is that, yes, I mean, the story, chapter 32 was already gripping in a, in a story in itself enough because you don't know whether or not Esau's going to cut his throat or what, what's going to happen here. And there's going to be more bloodshed in the Bible again. You know, all I can say, you don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, this interjected story. In the night before or a few nights before he meets his brother and all of a sudden he's here and What's going to happen in the, the intersecting story that we're going to look at today is actually almost more exciting than the other. It's almost like watching the, the Super Bowl to watch the commercials. And that's what happens here. And so I am running short on time as I look at the clock. And so let's just jump in and let's read, let's read this verse 24 because you've got to see this. Jacob was left alone. He was all alone. Now we don't like aloneness. Aloneness makes us uncomfortable, but he's alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man wrestled with him. We don't know who the man is. The man's not named. A man jumps into his tent, starts wrestling with him. Now, we don't know. There's all kinds of speculation, again, on who this man is for a long time until you go down to verse 28 and verse 30, and it says that this man is God. 
Now, this is where, again, it gets really complicated passage of Scripture. Different people have different uh, thoughts on it. Josephus thought it was a dream. Jewish literature thought it was a, an angel of Esau named Samuel. Jerome thought it was a prayer. Uh, Phileo and liberal interpreters today allegorized the text. But really, if you look at the text and you read it as, as, as the text is complete in itself, probably the most clear interpretation, or I guess the one I'm leaning on, is that this actually is a pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ has actually come to earth because he notices him here in verse, verse 24, he calls him man, but down in verse 28 he calls him God, and in verse 20, 30 he calls him you met God face to face. So here it is, we have him named as God and we have him named as man. Well, how can you put the two together outside of God-man? And who's the only God-man that I know of and, and throughout Scripture? is Jesus. So we have a pre-incarnate Christ coming down to earth. You say, hey, I thought Jesus was born in a manger. Yeah, he put on flesh in a manger. He came to earth and he lived for, for 33 years on the earth. Yes, but were there other appearances throughout, uh, of Jesus throughout Scripture? Because John chapter 1, verse 1 talks about Jesus always being from the very beginning. From the very beginning of time, well, there's other times where there was pre-incarnate uh, 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 times. Scholars believe Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, commission of Gideon in Judges 6, uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, three Hebrew men, what did they say, in the fiery furnace, and Daniel. They said there's four guys in there. Well, who was the fourth guy? Many people believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. So here we have... Jacob wrestling with this man-god or this God-man who he's wrestling with Jesus. Now, I can't get into the why. I'm not even going to go there. If Martin Luther and Walter Kaiser can't tackle that and give us a clear answer, then I'm not going to try it myself. But what can I take out of this, this story? Because an amazing thing happens, and let's just keep reading on here. Verse 24, we've read it. A man came while he was alone at night, and he wrestles with him till daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed, this man had not prevailed, the God-man, against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And again, there's all kinds of speculation on this, too. What did he touch? What did, how did he injure him? Medical people have looked at it. Some people even say he kicked him in the groin. Now, I, don't, I read that this week. I don't think that that's what God did here, okay? He didn't dislocate him there, all right? So that, that was not, I don't think that's a good option. You know, was it his sciatic nerve here? That was what another person said, that he touched his sciatic nerve, and now he's going to walk out of this thing with a limp. And then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. That's the God man talking. And he said, I will, this is Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, Your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him. Would you underscore that phrase? He blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Penel, and he said, I have seen God face to face. We'll stop there. What are you in your life desperately going to God with? If you had an encounter with, with Jesus Christ in your life, 
and he was wrestling with you and you're wrestling with him, again, I can't even imagine that. And we'll wait for heaven to see that on the big screen. But if you had God face to face, what would you desperately ask him for? He asked him to bless him. God did two things. And I think these two things are worth holding on to God desperately with great determination and great fervor. Again, the daybreak was coming. The light was starting to show. The God-man needed to get out of there. And he said, let me go. He didn't let him go. He touched his thigh. That, Jacob was a, was a heel grabber, if you remember. Whenever he was born, he was born right after Esau. And it said that when Esau was born, Jacob was holding his heel when he came out. That's what his name meant. Which brings me to the first thing that I want to hold on to God for, and that is this. Listen, number one, is a name that will match your new character. You need to hold on to God. You need to be desperate that God would give you a name that would match your character or a character that would match your name. I need a lot of work on my character from time to time. Jacob was a deceiver. He was the hill catcher. That's what his name Jacob means. He was a hill catcher. And that's what his mom named him. But as as he's born, he grows up and becomes this very deceptive individual, deceiving his dad, deceiving his brother, his children deceiving him, his father-in-law deceiving him. He lives in this tangle web of deception. Yet he's supposed to be a patriarch. He's supposed to be the line of which Jesus would be born. And how is it that, that God can take this deceiver and make him right? But he gave him a new name. Because a name in the Bible meant something. Today we look in name books. Today we look at what pop, what's popular names out there and we choose it. But a name represented something. It represented who you wanted your child to be or who your child was. You would name them according to, and you would hope the character would follow in suit. And here it is. His name, though it may mean hill catcher, really what his character was, he was a deceiver. But God renames him. He renames him Israel because he strove with God. He wrestled with God. Jacob, and as you know, Israel stuck. Israel has now become the nation of Israel. It has stuck ever since this day. That name was not used until this day, but it means that today. My name says who I am, but my character says what I, what I am. What are you? Who are you? There was one church that was meeting one day, and, and the child got drop, dropped off, and the Gwen was the, the, the four-year-old teacher who received this child, and as, as this child came in, they didn't have a name, didn't do a very good job on, on checking it, the child in, his, like, asking what his name was, and he says, my name's Brian, asking what's your last name, they didn't know what his last name was. So the, Gwen was trying to figure out, how can I get the, the, the kid's last name? So he said, okay, you don't know your last name, but what, you, what do you call your mommy? What's your mommy's name? Mommy. And uh, <clears throat> that didn't work, so what's your daddy's name? Daddy. Oh, uh, okay, well, that didn't work. So, what does your daddy call your mommy? Hey, dear, is what he answered. You know what that child, only thing that child knew was who that parent was. Forget the name. Who are you really? Who are you really? You know, Mike McDaniel, for many years in school and in church when I was growing up, was a name of a bully at school was the name of a kid who would, who would pick a fight on a playground or pick a fight in a locker room for no good reason. And whenever God called me into the ministry, 
I had to pray that God would give me character to match my name because one person told me at one time in my life, it was a, I remember it was a preacher visiting through our church growing up, and he said his name was Michael, and my name is Michael, and he says, you know what your name means? I said, I don't have a clue, don't care. But he told me anyway, he says, your name means like the Lord. And I can remember a feeling sinking inside of me at that very moment because I thought my life is not like the Lord. You know, you may not have a name that you even know the meaning of, but maybe you bear the name Christian. Does your name match who you are? Ask God, hold on to God to say, God, make me something great. God, make my name, make me to be, live up to that name Christian. Make, help me, Lord, to become who you want me to become. What does it mean to be a, a follower of Christ? I want to be that, God. I'm holding on to you until you make me what you intended me to be. This past week, a real interesting thing happened whenever we were in the bush in Mali. A guy has been coming. Every time one of our groups would come, he will come from another village and he will come and listen to our teaching. We didn't know this until just now. He's been coming for, for the, all the past trips and he lives in five kilometers away from this village. But finally, one of the last days that we were there, he asked us to give him a new name. Now, in that culture, you get a Bombra name when you come into that culture. Mine is Jean Marico, and you just, you just, that's your name. They don't know me as Mike McNanny, or they know me as Jean. And so, as, 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 I, as I go through the whole process, uh, I thought, this is interesting. I said, but we don't want to get into naming everybody. And so, why do you want a new name? He said, I'm a follower of Christ, and the name that my parents gave me is the name of an idol, of a pagan idol, and I don't want to be a pagan idol. I want a name to match who I am. And so we were talking as the guys were around, and it was Daniel who came up with the name Nicodemus because Nicodemus was the guy who came to Jesus uh, in the night, if you remember. And so here's this guy. I don't even know his bomber name, but he was coming to learn about Jesus. We thought his name ought to be Nicodemus, and so we called him in, in Bomber Nicodemi. And so his name is now Nicodemi. He has now a Christian name. But you know what? His name matched his character. He was a person who was coming to Christ. He was a person who was coming to learn of Christ. He was a person who was hopefully now taking Christ back to his village. He was living a life of a Nicodemus. Now, I wonder if your name is Mike, are you living up to your name? If your name is Christian, Christ follower, are you living up to your name? Jacob held on to God and wouldn't let him go. God renamed him. The second thing that God did and that encounter with him was the promise of the blessing. There's a promise of a blessing because he says, I will not let go until you bless me. And in verse 29, he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him. Now, that's a very mysterious, very Christianized word if you think about that. Blessing. We say it over a meal. We say it over McDonald's. God changed the molecular structure of this as it goes down that it might become carrots or whatever Tim Hawkins says. You know, we, we, we ask a blessing at, at turkey time and we ask blessings and we say, would you return grace? Well, what's a blessing? If you really study the Old Testament, the word blessing is used tons of times. In fact, a total of times throughout the, throughout the Old Testament is 640 different times it's used. The word blessing is actually pretty important then. If you understand what the word blessing is, 
Because that's what he asked for. And so if it's so important, then think about it. If you're with God and you're only with God and you're meeting God face to face and you've been wrestling with God and you can ask God one thing, he says, God, bless me. And then at the end, God blesses him. Don't you think it'd be valuable to know what a blessing is? You go on and you study and Gary Chapman, or excuse me, uh, Gary Smalley and John Trent have authored a great book. In fact, if you've ever been to me for counseling or ever we've ever talked at any length of time, you'll have heard me re- recommend this book called the gift of the blessing and he breaks it down and what the blessing means and what it is and 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 so forth and and i believe after reading this book no less than three times i loaned it out i typically don't loan out my books because they tend to don't they don't come back and so but i I loaned it out and and it never came back and so i went and got another one and i I read it again and, and then i read about half of it again this week so about five times i've read this book because it's just one of those things that just kind of I need to go back and revisit what is the blessing and what is it that's so important that Jacob's holding on to God and he said, God, don't, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me and God blesses him. I think I, figure, I need to figure it out. Gary Smalley breaks it down in very, very bite-sized morsels. But why is it that I would refer to this book so many times when I'm counseling with somebody? Because I'm afraid so many of us do not live with a blessing. We did not grow up in a home where the blessing was given. We don't, we don't live in a house where we give the blessing. We live, we live with our spouses and we say we love them and maybe we do love them, but we don't give our spouses the blessing. And so all of a sudden now, we're living in an unblessed life and so you've got to break it down. What is the blessing? And he lists out five different elements of what the blessing is. And he breaks it down very clearly through a study of the book of Genesis. You have to read it yourself. Go pick up the book. It came out in like 86. It was a... It was a Anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a great book, but here's a, just jot them down real quickly. The blessing includes several things. Number one, it includes a meaningful touch. Every home, every husband and wife, every child needs an appropriate, meaningful touch. Whenever Jacob was getting blessed by his father Isaac, Jacob, Isaac calls Jacob close to him and he kisses him. He kisses him. We must have meaningful touches in our life. Whether it's your love language or not, we need touches in our life. UCLA did a study and found to maintain emotional and physical health in a man or a woman, they need 8 to 10 meaningful touches each day. Think about that one. They need people in their life who will put their arm around them and give them a hug. Now, my love language is touch, so I have a real hard time when somebody's crying not to hug them. Or not to put my arm or not to pat them on the back. Not to shake a good firm handshake because we need meaningful touches. If you lived in a lot, if you lived in a family where you couldn't kiss your father, because you're a guy and guys don't kiss guys, or you couldn't sit on your dad's lap because you might take the crease out of his pants. I've heard of kids say that. My dad wouldn't let me sit on his lap because I'd take the crease out of his, his work suits. If you live in a home where you don't touch, you're living in a home without the blessing. Second part of, a, of the blessing is the spoken word. Words have power. Life and death, the Bible says, are in our words. Abraham spoke the blessing to Isaac. Isaac spoke the blessing to Jacob. Jacob spoke the blessing to his twelve sons. Spoken words, words that mean something, words of value, not grunts and groans. Not yell. Okay. But words that actually engage in a conversation that means something. 
which leads me to the next, next one. It was expressing high value, learning to express high value to those in your family. Your words should express high value. Genesis chapter 27, and 20, uh, verse 27 says it like this, Awe, the smell of my son is like the smell of an open country. Blessed by God, may God give you the heaven's dew and the earth's bounty of grain and wine. Do you hear the positive expression of high value? Men, do you communicate to your wife that you are the most beautiful person on the planet? And I would rather be with you than any other woman on the face of this earth. Do you tell your children? I have a little code language with my children. Jordan is my one and only because she's my only girl. And I always say, you're my one and only. We even have a little pinky is one and only. She's my one and only girl. Caleb is my, is my, uh, is my firstborn son. I talk about him being, you're my, you're my firstborn, man. I need you to carry the torch. Of course, Joshua is always going to be my baby. Always going always gonna to have a place at home. You can come home. In fact, I, he's bathing last night. I said, Joshua, if you don't want to move out of the house, you don't ever have to. <laughs> Speak high value. Speak a spoken word. Give a meaningful touch. Number four, picture a special future. Jacob spoke a special future to Judah when he said, you will be whom your brothers shall praise your father's children shall bow down before you. How many of us grew up in a home where a parent would say to us, you're worthless. You're a bum. You're never going to amount to anything. You grew up in a home without the blessing. You know, you can't blame all your parents back. You can't blame it on your aunts and uncles. You can't but, but realizing this, that maybe I don't have the blessing. Maybe I've lived a life without the blessing. It's vitally important to, to sort through in your life. Number five is an active commitment. God made it clear to Jacob that he was committed to him. God was committed to Jacob. You think about this. The first blessing that Jacob got, he got through deception. The second blessing he got, he got through wrestling with God. And God blessed him. He had to be hanging on all of his life thinking, did I rightfully get this blessing that, 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 that Isaac gave him? Because he had deceived his brother on that. And no, he didn't. He had stole that blessing. This time he got it from God. And this is what God promised to him in Genesis 28, 13-15. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you. Listen to the promise. I'm committed to you. I'm going to hang with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you, son. I'm going to walk with you. You have problems, I'm going to be with you. One day I will bring you back to the land and I, will, and I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I promised you. The blessing. Why would you go to God and hang on to God and say, God, I'm not going anywhere until you bless me. You're not going anywhere until you... Because of a meaningful touch, because of a spoken word, because of expressing high value, because of a picture of a special future, because God would be actively committed in my life. You know why this book meant so much to me? And I close with this. 
praise team, if you can go ahead and come back up. <coughs> I was a sophomore or junior in college when this book was given to me by one of my professors. And he read this book with me and we processed it through together. And I realized that I grew up, if you don't know, I grew up in a home where my mother and father were separated and I grew up with my mother and my mother gave me the blessing. She spoke high value to me. She touched and she loved and she cared. And I say this with, a, with, with great thought because I know my father's in the area and, and I love my father. But I did not get the blessing from my father. I did not get the spoken word. I did not get the meaningful touch. I, I, I didn't get the active commitment. I didn't get the high value. Remember one time talking about a positive future, the phrase coming out, you've chosen a lazy man's way to go. Whenever I declared I was going into the ministry, I lived without the blessing. How does a person live without the blessing and go on? I think you have to do what Jacob did. He's get with God. And say, God, I need your blessing. Because even though I'm a father and I try to be the best father I can, I know I'm going to mess up. I know there's going to be times that my words are going to hurt and they're going to pierce, but I, I was able to go to God and I was able to say, God, would you give me your blessing? Would you wrap your loving arms around me? Would you, would you speak words of affirmation into me? Would you be committed to me in my life where maybe somebody wasn't there all the time? And it was because of that that I believe I got the blessing. I hope today that maybe the struggle, some of the struggles in your life, some of the emptiness that you may be going through, maybe because you don't have the blessing. Maybe today you just need to say, God, you're the air I breathe. I am desperate for you. This is the time to pray. This is the time to say, God, I want your blessing. I may not be able to rely on my spouse to give it to me. I may not be able to rely on my, upon my family to give it to me, but God, would you give me the blessing? Would you bow your heads with me? Nobody's looking. Every head's bowed. Every eye's closed. And I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up. Put it down. Just as fast as you can or comfortably as you can. Don't need to hang it up in the air. If you would say today, Mike, I have been living without the blessing and I want the blessing. Just lift your hand up to God. Just put it, put it up and down. Thank you. And I want God to bless me. Let this be your prayer today. Father God, I'm desperate. I can fill it with stuff and material and drugs and broken relationships and messed up relationships. But Lord, what I realize I need more than anything else is I need your blessing. And I'm going to cry out to you now, Lord. Right now. I cry out to you, Lord, give me your blessing. In Jesus' name.